This podcast is brought to you by flexible working company Fora. Traditional offices may no longer be what workers want, but flexible workspaces like Fora can give the versatility that today's companies need. Not only can they be more economical, flexible workspaces can also have the amenities that employees really want. To learn more about how the old ways are being ditched for new workplaces, visit wired.uk forward slash Fora. Coming up today, Natasha investigates the UK's broken housing algorithm, Matt Burgess reveals how universities are snooping on students, and Amit witnesses the grim demise of the cinema industry. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. Natasha Banal. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Twitter and Facebook took unprecedented action to prevent people from seeing and sharing a controversial New York Post story about US presidential candidate Joe Biden. Twitter outright blocked it from being shared, while Facebook suppressed its distribution in the newsfeed. This was also the week when British Airways was fined £20 over its 2018 data breach, which impacted 400,000 customers. The data protection regulator planned to fine the airline £183 million, but took the economic impact of the pandemic into account. This is also the week when YouTube became the latest social network to crack down on the sprawling QAnon conspiracy theory. The company said it would ban material targeting a personal group with conspiracy theories that have been used to justify violence. The move follows similar steps taken by Facebook and Twitter in recent weeks. And finally, more than half the population of England is preparing for tougher lockdown restrictions from midnight on Friday, as London and other high-risk areas enter COVID Tier 2. Millions of people will be banned from mixing with other households indoors, including in pubs and restaurants. As we're all residents of London, I look forward to seeing you all maybe in 2022. We might squeeze in a, a quick visit to the pub. What have we learned this week? Matt Burgess. Uh, this week, I learned a fact about Venus. Uh, this was after rereading some of the sort of uh, news from a few weeks ago about um, the discovery of potentially uh, back was it bacteria? I can't even remember what it was. Uh, Just life. alien life on Venus. Yeah, yeah no that's the do. one. Um, sort of. Uh, so yeah, uh, I learned that a day on Venus lasts for two hundred and forty-three Earth days, while a year on Venus is two hundred and twenty four Earth days. So technically on Venus, a day is shorter than a year. Longer right. than a year. Longer like, than a year. Yeah. I guess I guess if you lived on Venus, you'd come up with different ways of measuring time because otherwise it would be confusing. You probably would, but you just wouldn't live on Venus. That's the that's the crux of it, really. That is the crux. Natasha, what did you learn this week? I learned about uh, great wind. So when hurricanes hit, most animals can be killed or injured because they sort of fly away. But not these lizards called anoles, which have evolved to survive really fierce winds by using really long toes with big topaz that are covered in ridges and hairs that give them a super strong grip on a tree or other perch. So these scientists uh, analysed 70 years of weather records and they found that if the lizards were based in locations where there were hurricanes, they would have longer topaz. And if they 
they were based in places where there were fewer hurricanes, they would have shorter ones. They can survive winds of 170 miles an hour. And human beings can survive 500 miles an hour, but without um, sort of things in their way, if you know what I mean. Things in their way? Yeah, like if you're in a hurricane, obviously you'd be smashing against things like debris, trees, rocks, you know. Whereas if the way that they measured it for human beings is if, for example, someone had to use a jetpack and eject from an airplane, they could survive 500 miles an hour. So worse than a lizard, basically. If we had toe pads, though, that would be a game changer. We'll get there. We'll get there. I've got another <laughs> um, evolutionary fact. Um, this one ended up uh, going viral on Twitter after I spotted it earlier in the week, but I was there first, I promise. Crustaceans, it turns out, have evolved into the shape of a crab entirely independently at least five times. So while a king crab and a coconut crab look really, really similar, they actually evolved along completely different paths. So it turns out that everything ultimately becomes a crab, whether it wants to or not. Crabs just make sense. Amit, what did you learn this week? Oh, I'd like to undercut all that whimsy and natural wonder with a deeply depressing fact about Uber. Uber has so many teachers working for it in the US state of Oregon that it now notifies riders when their driver is an Uber educator by putting a little book emoji next to their name. That's there you go. very cute and very sad, isn't it? It's awful. Yeah, although to be fair to Uber, they did donate 3% of the fare to a local school if you're if your driver was a poorly paid uh, teacher. How heartwarming. Um, Yes, well, well done, everybody. Uh, We've got a subscription offer, uh, a super special subscription offer for podcast listeners. You can get the current issue of Wired magazine for the ludicrously low introductory price of one British pound. You then get the next six issues for the equally low price of £19. That's more than a year of brilliant wired journalism for just 20 quid. This is a limited time offer and it's only available to people in the UK and only available to podcast subscribers unless one of you posts the offer link on Twitter. If you love the podcast and want to support what we do, then why not give the magazine a try? You won't regret it. Head to wired.uk forward slash pod sub one. Matt Burgess, that URL? That is wired.uk, not .co.uk, wired.uk forward slash pod sub one. And it's the the numerical one, not the word one spoken out. It is, and it's pod sub spelt in your normal way that you spell pod sub. Thank you very much. (laughs) Good stuff. Uh, Please do take us up on that because it will be a miracle if any of you uh, manage to understand us reading out that URL. Okay, first story this week, housing algorithms. Yes, fun fun topic. So no one is more fan of a good algorithm than this current government. Their latest attempt at, attempt at a scientific sort of spreadsheet-based response to a big problem is the housing algorithm. It's created by the Ministry of Housing, and this algorithm has tried to perfectly allocate an annual house-building target to each region by factoring in demand, population growth, and local affordability. The only problem is it's already incredibly broken. So, I mean... Hooray, another algorithm that we can despair over. What's what's wrong with it exactly? 
So it was, it was basically designed to solve England's housing crisis, but it's choosing to build houses in the wrong places. It's setting astronomical targets for rural towns where there's lo- low demand and city locations where the cost of land is incredibly high, while artificially slashing housing targets in the places where people need them most. So if the algorithm has its way, London and the South East will have hugely inflated new targets for housing, while cities further north will have their targets slashed to levels lower than their current output. So if, you know, it's just a kind of catastrophic um, disbalance of the kind of situation in housing that is currently available. Even the Housing Building Federation, which is a trade group that supports most of the government's policy, says they've recommended changes to the government to make sure the algorithm actually delivers homes in the north. So these regional inequalities arise from the constraints of the algorithm itself and it's heavy weighting towards demand. So if, for example, London generally needs three times as many homes as Liverpool, the algorithm basically determines that Liverpool's share of the new housing target would be roughly a third of the capitals, even though the figure doesn't actually match the city's needs. So let's take Manchester, which is currently in the midst of a housing boom. The the homes that are being built over there at the moment are really expensive. Between 2016 and 2018, not a single one of the 14,667 homes were classed as affordable. But if, if the situation is currently as it is with this algorithm. It's not just telling the city to not produce more affordable housing, but to produce 31% fewer new homes every year. Yeah, we we obviously have a lot of uh, listeners to the podcast that are based sort of all around the world, lots of different uh, countries. Could you give us a, maybe a little bit of context in terms of like what the point of this housing algorithm was in the first place and sort of why it was considered needed in that sort of situation? Yeah, housing has been considered basically a massive disaster for a long time. So it's been a bureaucratic nightmare where councils are sort of planning uh, departments are faced with hugely angry residents who don't want anyone to build anything anywhere. So faced with opposition from them, local authorities have frequently struggled to even come up with a number of new homes that they need to build each year. And this algorithm basically allows them to get to that concrete figure. So people really need this number because local authorities were falling way behind producing any plan at all because there was so much argument over the basic number of houses they had to plan for. So the government chose 300,000 homes a year as an achievable target for the country but that completely ignores the real demand. So it, it could be closer to 400,000 or 500,000, according to Jonathan Webb, who's a housing researcher for the Institute of Public Policy Research. And we spoke to him for this piece. He says that the problem with this algorithm is that it's so completely constrained by what the government perceives the housing need to be that it's short of what's actually needed. And when you try to produce enough supply in London, you end up reducing the number of homes you build in other areas and the problem is that those other areas still do need homes so they've, they've grabbed this 300,000 figure they've said this is the target we're going to get so the algorithm has then got that information it's processed it and said okay we're going to slice up pieces of this pie you can get some London and then since London needs three times as much as the city we'll give them three times as much and you end up with basically nothing and that's the big problem with this it doesn't really necessarily factor in real life. So it's bad data in bad outcome out, something that we've seen pretty consistently with government-backed algorithms is that they reflect the biases inherent in society. So we're seeing in the UK, where in England at the moment, a bias around COVID-19 policies against the North and in favour of particularly London and the South East. So what's going to happen on the ground if this algorithm is implemented because to be clear we're still some way off this being used in the wild 
Yeah, that's right. So if, if it does end up as is implemented in the wild, the whole sector in certain regions could be at risk. And while it's still uncertain whether developers will be stopped from building extra homes in northern cities, it does seem likely that government support for the industry will be given a significantly lower priority than it is right now. Experts are saying everything from tax incentives and funding to fast-track permissions and joint projects could be at risk, and the effect that that would have on local economies is devastating. And just as there are losers under this algorithm, there are winners too. So you forget there's a massive market behind every single plot of land in the UK with a huge drive of certain housing suddenly in random areas of the UK the demand to develop new land will skyrocket. One of the examples that we used um, in the piece was Tunbridge which is a relatively rural um, town which would suddenly explode. It would, be, it would be growing by about a tenth of its size every year under this algorithm's decided um, sort of equation. So as a result the, the value of the finite amount of land in very coveted areas would shoot up. And if you think about the way that the country is divided, almost half of the UK is currently owned by less than 1% of the population. And many of the landowners would do very, very well from any concentrated surge in house building. So if you don't distribute the amount of houses that you need across England, then you're going to end up going to just all the places that already are worth a lot of money and just paying a massive amount to develop any kind of housing in that area. So in places like Camden in London, which has been told to increase the number of homes it builds each year from under 1,000 to 5,604, very specific number, there's a very, very small bit of land available. And even if the government's newly proposed planning reforms managed to release more land for development, it's unlikely they could ever free up enough to account for a surge that high. So this kind of land inflation has other knock-on effects as well. In essence, the more expensive the land, the more likely that the housing built on it will be luxury and high-end. So it's the types of buildings that give developers bigger margins, and it completely defeats the point of the algorithm entirely. I've got to say, I find this story absolutely bewildering. Like, I don't understand why, what the number of houses that are required in London has anything to do with the number of houses that are required in Manchester or or anywhere else in the country, or and and why the government would be allocating a non-finite resource out as if it's a finite resource. There's no maximum number on the number of houses you can build in. I mean, there is, but you know, there's, there's there's enough room to build all the houses we need in the UK. So I don't really see why they've decided to set what sounds like an arbitrary number of houses and then allocate them out to different cities when they could just build all the houses we need. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, make it easier to build houses so that the market takes care of it. B- bizarre. Um, so, I mean, presumably the government has realised this and is going to scrap the algorithm, right? No. So so what you say about like why an arbitrary number is because the, the lack of affordable housing has been a problem for some time and it's been that sort of bureaucratic block that stopped anything from happening sooner. And so they've put this this amount out there saying, OK, people are desperate for housing. We don't have enough housing. Let's see if we can make it happen. The algorithm, which is based on, doesn't have any of the context of where people are looking for, why putting certain houses in certain areas is a good idea and why it isn't, um, has decided arbitrarily to do this. But as James was saying before, this is still very much in its early stages. So it's at white paper stage, uh, which means that it's far away from parliamentary vote, let alone being implemented. It's, it's just not, not happening yet. And experts in the housing industry are just as confused as you are, Amit, about the exact ramifications of these housing targets. Many are saying they're really not sure what role the government would play in supporting or undercutting local development in affected areas. So if you have a private developer who decides to put thousands of houses in the middle of nowhere, 
is the government going to stop them because it doesn't fit into its 300,000 quota? Probably not, but no one's really clear on what's going on. So the Ministry of Housing at the moment is saying it's happy to update or refine the algorithm to help handle potential complaints. And politicians and industry figures have basically been jumping in and trying to fiddle with the calculations. Um, Earlier this month, London Mayor Sadiq Khan offered his tentative support to the algorithm on the condition that different mathematical weighting would be applied to affordability and housing stock calculations. In essence, changing the formula of this algorithm completely to be more suited to the economic situation in London. So what he was saying was very much the argument of, you know, you can't plonk loads of houses in Camden where no one can really afford to buy them anyway. Let's put them in places where people could afford to buy them and make them affordable housing, make it actually work out because we have too many luxury houses in the UK, in London anyway that no one can actually live in when they're normal people. So given this government's uh, history of U-turns, it really doesn't seem out of the question that the algorithm could be scrapped all really significantly altered before it's implemented on a sort of actual practical level. And this could eventually form a part of quite a concerted effort that the government is currently going through to make the planning process easier or different, at least. A big problem at the moment, and there's a a very local example to where I live in South London, of, of NIMBYism, of developments in disused buildings and local residents complaining about the number of units that want to be put into them. And the current planning process makes it all too easy for a very small number of objectors to delay a project, and on the flip side, for developers to try and push through developments that aren't what's actually required by the local area. So you can see the logic of bringing in an algorithm that is able to, without those biases and those complications of messy human beings, make or help make better decisions. But what we're saying is, again, bad data is coming in, so bad results are coming out. So, Natasha, a super simple question for you. Has there ever been a single example of an algorithm that's good for public policy? Not really. Um, so, as you say, James, there's a lot of politics involved, a lot of opinions involved, and uh, I think this government has been very prone to saying, oh, if the algorithm, which is independent, it doesn't have political bias, is making the decisions, then it will surely be seen as independent and everyone will agree that it was fine, and that's just not been the case. So I think the, the biggest, latest example of this going wrong was the exams algorithm scandal earlier this year, which we covered. It's perhaps the most worst howler we've seen so far. For the first time, this algorithm was given the authority to dictate dictate the grades of A-level students. For those of you listening outside of the UK, these are the grades that determine whether you go into university or not and what kind of university you go into. So it's hugely important um, bit of grading part of school. So uh, it was a complete fiasco. And it was biased against students from state schools and people from diverse backgrounds, completely ruined the chances of many people being accepted in their first choice university, was scrapped after public outcry. We covered it extensively, and I do recommend you check out Amit's piece about it if you haven't already. But the housing algorithm and the exams algorithm are hardly the first of their kind. Early this year, police forces in Britain pressed ahead with widespread trials of facial recognition software, despite the fact that technology has been found time and time again to wrongly identify people as much as 98% of the time. It cannot identify identify people on the street, can't identify people who are wearing face masks or, you know, head coverings or have beards. It's it's flawed and 
they know it and yet they've still implemented it. And crime prediction software, which I believe Matt Burgess is very um, au fait about, attempts to work out if an individual will commit an offence in advance. That's been adopted by 14 police forces as of last year. And this is despite the fact that the software is allegedly unfairly biased against lower income and BAME communities. So the recurring theme here is an assumption that by just using an algorithm, you can find a completely objective solution to any issue. And all these algorithms have completely struggled when they've come in contact with the real world. That completely suggests otherwise. And what Webb was telling us earlier in this report was this is essentially the problem with all algorithms. They just reproduce human biases. So if you are giving it information that's horrible, it's just going to spout information that's horrible and it's just the way it's going to go so this housing algorithm unless it's drastically reconfigured is not going to work it's going to be just the same fiasco as what we had with the exams a cheerful start to the podcast and i can't guarantee that things are going to get any more uplifting over the next 30 minutes or so so if 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 you need a bit of a break just put us on pause and go and do something fun podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on the uk's latest algorithmic fiasco um, and please do read the piece if you haven't we'll include a link in the show notes our second story matt burgess students screwed over by the exams algorithm and now they've got another problem yeah so there's actually a nice uh, sort of cohesion between the two stories here um so yeah students that were impacted by that uh, exams algorithm fiasco early this year um those were students that were taking their a levels and going heading to uh, university for the first time uh, now many of them are at university um and there is a whole new set of situations and events that they're having to deal with much like the rest of us but these are sort of new well they're young people in new cities for the first time um and they are um sort of going through well just for the context of uh what's been happening at a few universities around the country um most of the teaching in the uk is virtual uh there's very little face-to-face teaching i think there may be some in some places but it's very much the sort of like uh the outlier of it is um but uh, a lot of cases universities have uh, also seen students quarantined in their dorms due to outbreaks uh they've been fed food delivered by university staff not been able to leave their accommodation uh, a few months after going to university for the first time and there's new now a new aspect to all this as they uh, start learning for the first time at university uh, they're being tracked digitally like never before oh no what's happening <laughs> So this week we reported on the uh, types of digital surveillance that students are facing. So universities across the UK are increasingly using a type of learner analytics tools to monitor students. Uh, This was a thing before the pandemic, so it's not brand new, but it is increasing as teaching, as I say, isn't happening uh, in a face to face scenario. So um, analysis from Wired and from our reporter, uh, Chris Stoker Walker on this, um, looked at three popular learning analytics tools which are being used by universities which track student attendance at lectures uh, if they were happening uh, but happening digitally now uh, library visits and uh, more so at least 27 universities around the uk using this technology from three of the leading companies there are other companies that are making these types of tools as well Um, but yeah from our snapshot analysis there are at least 27 that are using this Um, and really the sort of like picture of how much the tracking is happening um, is not very clear 
Um, so we questioned a lot of universities about the type of tracking or monitoring systems that they have in place to to look at what students are doing and if they're attending and if they're watching lectures, etc. Um, and there was very few answers coming from the universities themselves. Um, but we do know from some of the information that we have that the data collection can be quite vast. So one university's privacy notice to students about one of the types of software um, that it is using to collect detailed information. Uh, it tracks how often students log into their virtual learning environment, if they click on any content, hand in any work, take out books from the library, access journals, view reading lists, print, scan, photocopy documents, log on to any computers that are owned by the university uh, and or attend lectures, seminars and workshops. Um, and if the students are deemed not to be engaging with their education, uh, then they may be contacted by a student support advisor or emailed uh, automatically. There's emails that go out every two weeks, uh, which will uh, be to people that are deemed to be having lower engagement with the university um, and the National Union of Students, which is the, the body that looks after uh, sort of student affairs from the, from their perspective. Uh, says that such tools are often employed with very little explanation of their purpose. Uh, there needs to be legal assurances in place to how data is being used and not misused. And there basically needs to be a lot more transparency around this for students to trust the universities that they are putting, uh, well, they're paying to attend and also putting their sort of uh, livelihood, livelihoods uh, on the line with. See, I'm kind of in two minds about this because I think <laughs> I probably could have done with a bit more supervision when I was at university uh, and uh, to, deal, to deal with my, uh, my low engagement, as, as you put it, Matt. And, but then on the other hand, I think any system that collects a list of what books people are reading is, is I think, in the current climate, probably not a good thing to, to have. So I guess, can you kind of dig a bit more into like why this is a bad thing? Because I'm not sure it'll be immediately obvious to some people. Yeah, I think that some of the uh, sort of like uh, the there's some uncertainty around this from from different perspectives. I think if you are a student or a lecturer or somebody that works at university, you could see why there could be sort of like a, a suggestion of sort of too much data being collected and, and what's happening with that data. But there it is also fair to say that universities have a duty of care over their students. It is a role of a university to make sure that uh, the people that are paying to be there are going. And if they're not going, as you say, Amit, they might have... Uh, valid reasons or they might have reasons that they might need some extra support for sort of mental health care or other uh, other sort of considerations around their lifestyle so um, it's not necessarily a terrible thing but there are sort of like questions around sort of the uh, around how much data is being collected so at Bolton University whose vice chancellor has admitted the institution monitor students uh, through learning materials library use etc um, their students union president there they say that they are uh, the students aren't being punished if they are missing or attending lectures rather that the tracking system is used to check how long students are logged in for and to make sure essentially that they're doing their work um, and that the university isn't using this data in a forceful way or any way to sort of punish people and I think that's one of the sort of like big concerns around the reporting we did on this in terms of like how these systems could be used to creep uh, into like greater levels of surveillance so some of the questions that were raised around this reporting is the systems are not really standardized um, there are some sort of like uh, guides around um, sort of the best practices for these types of software, but they're a couple of years old um, and they haven't been updated recently. And obviously we're living through very uh, uncharted times of the pandemic and um, these types of things will become more important if uh, more learning does go online and virtual. And I think some of the really big things are just sort of, it's not really clear 
clearly spelled out how they use or if there are any other methods to do this that you could be doing it instead um so there's also been concerns from some of the experts we spoke to around this around like um what happens to that data afterwards from what we could tell a lot of the universities um are, are not uh, selling on any data or stuff like that they're making it um once um once a student leaves university it's deleted but there are sort of like concerns about this type of data collection and how going forward it could be uh potentially problematic if if it became very normal and that data was then passed on to people and the reason this has become a real issue is because we're in the middle of a pandemic all learning has gone online as you say a lot of these tools were already being used but the amount of interaction that universities had with students that wasn't face-to-face was an awful lot lower you know you'd take a register if you wanted to check if they were attending lectures or you'd get a vague idea if only half your class turned up The problem here is that because these changes have happened so quickly and potentially with very little thought and oversight that we end up introducing ways of behaving and ways of tracking people that we're not comfortable with and the ramifications of that aren't fully thought through. So you talked about mission creep. Where could this end up? Yeah, so uh, there's one there's one point as well that's worth mentioning around sort of like uh, in the UK, uh, some sort of attendance data is required by sort of central government home office areas uh, for sort of immigration of students who are uh, from overseas. So there's that aspect to it as well, which we didn't go into much in the piece, but it's something that's worth pointing out that some of this data is required legally. Um, so universities have looked at ways of collecting it uh, which they wouldn't do if people were attending and you could sign a register so but looking forward there are sort of like uh some indications around how this could change going forward uh, in terms of our relationship with technology so uh, the university of buckingham which is a private education institution institution has uh, said that it's launching in 2022 a new type of degree there which essentially uses uh, a lot more personalization within the system which could be a good thing in some cases Uh, but it says that ai and intelligent platforms will monitor student engagement and understanding helping staff to see where students are falling behind or need more materials to aid their learning and i think one of the big things about this as you say james is this is a different way of doing things altogether and we sort of don't know how to interact with these technologies when when the world is changing and sort of what we're comfortable with is sort of being redefined as we go but in the us uh, over the last few months there has been a lot of monitoring through exams uh, so this is just one sort of like uh and it well, reported story from the washington post but uh that they were reporting around how uh webcams have been used by a lot of sort of online exams for people to watch invigilators or or people to watch that people are actually sitting and taking the exam so uh, a university of florida student uh was feeling sick during one of her uh home exam uh tests over over the last few months uh and she asked the person who was at the other end of the system uh is it okay to throw up at my desk um they said yes and basically this person was uh ill during their test uh didn't move uh at because there were no bathroom breaks being permitted um and essentially yeah she was sick a couple of times and couldn't sort of clean herself up or get rid of the situation until the test was finished and she was given permission to log off um so those types of that that's obviously an extreme example but um those types of services uh and online testing in that scenario has been quite common in the us over the last few months um so it's a little bit like what we've seen as well with businesses monitoring uh workers when they're working from home and sort of like basically uh tracking a lot more metrics and performance and i would say the 
the key thing is uh, probably, yes, we need to re-examine some of, some of our behaviours around these technologies, decide what we're comfortable with, decide what's appropriate for a time when we're living through an unprecedented crisis and sort of re-evaluate um, yeah, our relationship with technology in some cases. If you want to glimpse the future, just look at America, where there are people vomiting in wicker baskets because they're not allowed to leave their desk because someone's spying on them through their webcam to make sure that they properly sit an exam under remote conditions. I told you it wasn't going to get much more cheerful. Podcast at wired.co.uk. How can we make good decisions about our relationship with technology when so much more of our lives are being lived online? What good examples of change during this time of huge disruption have you witnessed? Give us something positive to talk about. Podcast at wired.co.uk or share something depressing if you're in that kind of mood. Our third and final story this week, Amit, is about the collapse of the cinema industry. That's right. Another cheery one. That's right. Yeah. So um, movie lovers will have been reaching for their wicker baskets uh, the other week when uh, the big chain Cineworld decided to close all of its uh, UK cinemas. Um, the, the cinema industry in the UK is gasping for air. Admissions are on course to hit their lowest level since records began in 1928. Cineworld's closed. Odeon and View have announced that they're going to be scaling back their opening times to a few days a week. And all the kind of optimism... Uh, around the release of Tenet has evaporated. Why has this happened? Because it wasn't... Tenet, as you say, caused some optimism, but it disappeared pretty quickly. What was the big thing that made all the optimism disappear? It's basically all James Bond's fault. Um, so we, we sent um, a reporter, Stephen Kelly, down to the last uh, last days of Cineworld at Leicester Square. So he, he was kind of speaking to some of the staff there and, and, and one of the, the people at the contestant stand kind of said... You know, as soon as Bond move, was moved, we knew it was over. Um, you know, we can't just keep showing the same films every day. So, you know, a lot of Cineworld staff have been let go. Uh, they've been promised that they'll be hired back once the cinema reopens. Um, but they've obviously started applying for jobs elsewhere. They got to take, and this is, a, I mean, it's a great, very, very bleak detail from the story that, that will be up on Wired shortly. But they got to take the un, uneaten popcorn home with them. But, you know, as one worker said, popcorn won't pay the rent. Um and this all kind of stems, um, you know, the latest kind of uh, hammer blow to the cinema industry was where the James Bond film No Time to Die, which was originally supposed to be released in April 2020, and then was pushed back to kind of the, the December time, getting pushed back again to next year. Uh, and that kind of had like a domino effect. So No Time to Die led to the delay of June. Wonder Woman has been shifted from October to December. Black Widow has been shifted from November to March. And, you know, some big pictures like Mulan and, and Soul, which is a new Pixar movie, have, are going to bypass cinemas altogether and they're going straight to streaming on Disney+. Plus. Um, you know, some independent cinemas are, are kind of scrapping for survival as well, so it's not just the big chains. Um, some have closed, some are doing okay, but the industry now finds itself in a sort of surreal catch-22 where major studios won't release blockbuster films because they don't think people are going to the cinema to see them. But people aren't going to the cinema because there's nothing for them to watch. There's no blockbuster films for them to watch in the cinema. So there's this kind of grim feeling by the time that major studios hit upon, you know, the ideal release date, you know, when cinemas are ready to reopen, there may not be any cinemas left for the, those movies to go into. Oh, this is all really grim. And I know we talk about View and uh, Cineworld a lot and the big chains, but obviously you've got independent cinemas who don't necessarily have 
you know, backup funds to have gotten them even this far. It's a really dire situation. And we were hearing a lot over over the summer, you were reporting about how cinemas were reopening, how they were doing a lot about social distancing and making sure people were safe. Like, given the fact that people want a bit of a respite from the horribleness that is this pandemic, why aren't studios releasing their blockbusters? Cinemas were open, people were bored. Why didn't they just try it out? Well, they, I mean, I guess they did. So Tenet was really like the kind of canary in the coal mine here, if that's the right analogy. I suspect it probably isn't. But um, it, it's kind of been this weird cycle of hope and disappointment. So cinemas, as you say, Natasha, did a load of work trying to make make sure that viewers felt safe, you know, and they brought in like kind of social distancing and like, you know, special machines to kind of clean the seats in between screenings and things like that. Um, and then when Tenet came out, it, you know, it did really well in, in, in kind of internationally. It got $300 million internationally, which is, you know, kind of pretty good in the circumstances. But the problem is that it performed quite poorly in America with only, ticket sales of only $45 million. And that's partly because cinemas in two of its biggest markets, LA and New York, uh, were still closed. And what that means is that although currently kind of globally, 75 to 80% of screens globally are open, you know, Asia's open, Europe's open, uh, Brazil's open, Mexico's opening, South America's open because these kind of key markets of the United States aren't open, so, uh, movie distributors are really, really reluctant to kind of release them, their films until they can get into that market, which I guess is, although maybe not the bulk of their kind of ticket sales, it's, it's you know, the, the prestige market where, you know, the prob- the execs that are kind of in charge of whether or not to release these, these movies probably live and, and work, and, and that's the kind of environment that they want to be the first to see those films. And there's also a problem with planning, right? Films need a, a good few months run-up of promotion and marketing, and you don't want one blockbuster to clash with another, so everyone gave Tenant the space it needed, but then you can have a sudden glut of all the blockbusters that we've been saving up for six or seven months. So it's caused this problem where everyone's just continually kicking the can down the road to a point where maybe we'll go back into that normal cycle of blockbusters come out in this month and then not this month and certain studios leave spaces open for others we're completely out of that routine now but not everyone is in trouble there are some cinemas that are doing pretty well against the odds yeah yeah exactly so some some independent cinemas i think the ones that are kind of more community centric i guess the ones that have really made an effort to kind of build links with the people that live nearby are doing okay so the the prince charles cinema which is an independent cinema in london has actually found itself having to hire new workers that's partly because they've split their employees into kind of two separate bubbles but partly because they're actually doing okay and what some people have said to us is that this crisis is a kind of a, a symptom of an underlying condition that's been affecting the industry even before COVID is that there's an over-reliance on these massive blockbusters to keep the entire industry afloat you know places like Odeon, View, Cineworld you know they rely on these big 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 films a few blockbusters account to account for ninety percent of the business, according to one distribution company. Whereas these kind of smaller um, cinemas, you know, they'll do things like they'll do like screenings of old films, and they'll kind of you know do themes like weeks and things like that. So they've kind of got reasons for to bring people in that don't necessarily rely on there being a kind of steady supply of new films. Um, and you know, by the same kind of note, some kind of smaller films which probably ordinarily would have been drowned out by the kind of stream of blockbusters have actually been doing all right. So there was a Russell Crowe thriller called Unhinged, which did very well. It brought in nearly £200 million at the box office. And it's been playing for a lot longer than it normally would have. A film like that would normally have been in cinemas for two or three weeks before it got kind of pushed out by something else. But it's been kind of running for for 10 weeks. And 
it's been kind of growing over and over again, more and more and more, whereas traditionally, you know, the opening weekend is the big one, and then things kind of tail off after that. This has kind of been, it's had that long appeal, which I guess shows that, you know, people are still going to the cinema and there's nothing for them to watch, so they're watching Unhinged with Russell Crowe. And as we sort of, like, go forward, obviously, sort of, there are still many disruptions to the process of uh, the the film industry as a whole around the world. So whether that's filming or distribution or uh, any side of that, even before it gets to consumers, what do we know about, sort of, like, the long-term impact this is going to have on the industry? Yeah, so this has been a real, I think, a real wake-up call for a lot of people in the industry. Um, And I think one thing it's kind of maybe changed forever is is this this idea of the kind of exclusivity window that, that that films get in cinemas so this is that kind of you know normally two or three month period where a film that's released in cinemas will not be available to watch in any other way and this is something that cinema chains kind of negotiate with distributors quite hard for uh it, in response to the pandemic and cinema closures distrib- uh, film distributors are being able to be more flexible with kind of smaller chains so one film called Rocks was in cinemas for just two weeks before it went to Netflix. And there was a big fight between Universal and um, AMC over um, Trolls World Tour, believe it or not. Um, which, and, and you know, they, they kind of, Universal kind of said, you know, we're going to put this straight to streaming and, and AMC, which owns Odeon, threatened to never host another Universal film ever again. But they've made peace on this deal, which kind of reduces that exclusivity window to 17 days and cuts AMC into part of the profits from video on demand so what we might see is that this kind of window of exclusivity disappears or kind of erodes a little bit so that people have the option to go and see something in cinemas if they want to but if people don't feel comfortable then they will have the option to kind of stream it at home sooner uh and hopefully that will be enough to kind of keep the cinema industry alive and then i guess beyond that you know these blockbusters that are being delayed they do still all exist so there is going to be hopefully a kind of massive boom year either in 2021 or 2022, when these films can actually all come out. Uh, and there's going to be some incredible, you know, films available to watch. It's just whether or not there's going to be any cinemas for people to watch them in. You almost, almost ended on a note of optimism. We were so close. And then no. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Have you been paying uh, good money to still go to the cinema and sit in a strange, socially distanced environment? Are you sad to see them close or is this just an inevitability of the pandemic era that we're living in and counter to that would you pay 15 20 pounds to sit down at home and watch big blockbusters like no time to die in your living room podcast at wired.co.uk please do get in touch with us about that story or anything else that we talked about on the show this week you won't find the link to that one in the show notes if you're listening to this on friday um it's published on saturday and you'll find the link on wired.co.uk Time for a couple of your emails. Amit, you're going to take us through the first one. Yeah, we've had a couple of emails in. So one is from Matt, who is a Canadian living in Sweden. He wrote in about the story that I did last week or the week before about the right stuff and the skill set required to be an astronaut. And he said it reminded him of a series on BBC called Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes, which was a competition hosted by Chris Hadfield, where they kind of put people through challenges and tests relating to being an astronaut and the winner got a recommendation to NASA. He said it was really, really interesting to see all the different kinds of people uh, and this incredible skill set kind of being required to be able to be an astronaut. Uh, Yeah, a fascinating story. And I I suspect a skill set that I do not uh, not have, unfortunately, despite uh, my ambition to one day go to space. 
Um, we also got another piece of feedback in from Tim, Katie and Jack, who say that the Wired podcast is a family favourite. Uh, they listen to it while driving and have learned so much. Uh, they said they love the casual but well-informed nature and look forward to each episode. They also wrote in about the right stuff and uh, the, the, it's a Disney Plus show, which is about the Mercury 7, which were the group of astronauts uh, selected for the, one of those first um, American missions into space. But they wrote in about a group of women, and I actually didn't know this, so thank you so much for, for sharing this because this was really, really interesting. There was a group of women called the Mercury 13 who um, actually outperformed some of the Mercury pilots in tests um, but kind of weren't sent out because NASA and you know US senators didn't want the first people in space to be women but this is a really really interesting story and I think there's a documentary from 2018 that kind of tells the story of these women um you know they write that they should get a mention whenever the Mercury program comes up um and I, I definitely agree uh they also asked for an update on the avocado seed sprouting which I think was a Vicky Turk project so we might have to wait until next week for, for an update on that we could we could just ask you about the magpies Amit have there been any sightings in the trees outside your window no, there were some boisterous teenage magpies harassing some other birds uh, a couple of days ago, but I've not seen heard anything from them since. Good. Do keep us updated. And we'll check with Vicky, and uh, I think she's growing chilies and avocados and all sorts of stuff. She's living the good life. Matt Burgess, printers. Yeah, so we had uh, a couple of emails again on the uh, on the story about printers, which is one that um, Vicky was leading on last week. Um, and these emails were both from Fergal and Mike. And just to uh, sort of a bridge paraphrase a bit of both of them, uh, they both said that they enjoyed the podcast and um, it was... Um, Fergal says that it was a little short-sighted to encourage investing in home printers um, without describing many downsides, such as the uh, waste that the industry famously generates, um, and suggests that, uh, Fergal says that surely it's a good thing that we're moving away from uh, printers, from lots of home printers and printing less. And then Mike also added that um, there'll be consequences for the environment. Hurriedly brought cheap printers will end up in landfill um, as they are unreliable and unexpected expensive to run um and they will waste energy by being left on standby etc and i think that yeah i think those are both uh, two very good points and something that we didn't touch upon uh, within that sort of discussion but yeah the the printer industry is obviously one that can be um very wasteful um and is one that probably could do a lot better in terms of its environmental impact so yeah good points thank you for writing in on those and they are just rubbish, aren't they? I mean, I, I listened to the podcast last week and I agree with an awful lot of the points you raised. But just to add, home printers are absolutely diabolically bad. And one final thing, Tim, Katie and Jack, thank you so much for telling us that the podcast is a family favourite. Um, we don't often read out the nice little lines of praise that people send in, but that one really resonated. So thanks so much for sticking with us and uh, listening to the podcast every week. It's good to have you with us. Do write in podcast at wired.co.uk. We love hearing from you. Please send in compliments. It makes us happy. We will see you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.